because people start tipping the jigger while they're still pouring, it seems like they're pouring more. I always thought it came because you're trying to seem more generous than you are. In theory, I'm sure there's a way to do that accurately with enough practice. It seems like a little bit of flair that actually just makes your pouring inaccurate. Hello, and welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy Bar Chat Podcast. This is Tristan Stevenson. Today, I am talking to Greg Bohm. Greg is the owner of several New York bars, the founder of the barware company Cocktail Kingdom, and the holder of the largest collection of vintage cocktail books in the world. On this episode, I quiz Greg about his entry route into the cocktail world, his book and barware collection, which is substantial, how Cocktail Kingdom was founded, and how and where their now massive range of equipment is manufactured. We delve into the history of the bar spoon, cocktail shaker and jigger, and discuss whether certain drinks require certain pieces of equipment, and vice versa. We also talk about the lack of innovation in barware, and Greg and I share our pet gripes around the misuse of cocktail equipment and the inaccuracy of some of the equipment on the market. Insofar as the cocktail making side of bartending goes, cocktail equipment is intrinsic to what we do. At its best, these are the skillfully polished instruments of the bartender's craft, that offer a precise and consistent way with which to produce drinks and the resilience to hold up to months, if not years, of hard service without complaint. The accuracy, materials, ergonomics and fundamental design of these pieces of equipment, which have remained relatively unchanged over the past 150 years, is rarely brought into question, though. Perhaps this is because the tools we use were already perfectly honed for the task at hand, or maybe we've just gotten used to them. I can't think of a better companion to discuss these matters than Greg, who may have spent more time considering the design of bar equipment than any other person alive today. This episode gets a little geeky at times. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, I am here with Greg Bohm. Greg, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Perhaps you can start by telling us a little bit about your background um, and how you got into the industry. Absolutely. Um, I started in the cocktail world through book publishing. Uh, my family had a publishing company, among other many other books. We published a book by Salvatore Calabresi, which ended up selling millions of copies called Classic Cocktails. Uh, from that, I met Salvatore when he was at the library bar and got into cocktails and then started collecting cocktail books. And I ended up with the largest collection of antique cocktail books in the world. Then I started publishing cocktail book reproductions uh, facsimile reproductions of some of the best books. And from that, I met a lot of bartenders. Um, and I realized there weren't, um, there was not great access to really good barware at that time. You know, we're talking 14 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, so I started, besides the reproductions of cocktail books, I started importing and then designing and manufacturing barware. And then later, I opened up a few bars, uh, cocktail bars in New York, and started a Christmas. Uh, cocktail bar worldwide pop-up called Miracle as well. I remember, I think my first introduction to you was through Jeff Masson, who works with you. And it was around the time that Cocktail Kingdom was first getting off the ground. And I was opening a bar in London. And at the time, I was kind of, we were looking for art to put up on the walls of the bar. And I was kind of really obsessed with this artwork, um, the illustrations in Ted Saucier's Bottoms Up. And... Um, 
Jeff informed me that you owned basically every copy of this book available to mankind. Um, had you know dozens of copies of this same cocktail book, and I was like, hmm, Greg seems like a kind of guy I'd like to get to know. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, that book actually, my father published the second edition of that book in the 60s, totally coincidentally. But yeah, I ended up accumulating a lot of duplicate copies of that book because I also like to give it as a gift because it is a pretty amazing Art Deco masterpiece. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a big book, um, like a lot of recipes, but then those illustrations and some of the most famous artists of the era contributed towards those illustrations. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's a really nice book. Yeah. Um, So, and then tell me a little bit about the the cocktail book collection because... Um, again, uh, uh, linking back to uh, Jeff Masson, he, he used to have a pretty substantial collection of cocktail books as well. What was it that you know really sort of drew you into this vintage cocktail scene? Because, like you know, as as coming from a publishing background, sure, like it, they're books and they're old and that makes them interesting. But was there anything in particular about cocktails that that sort of stood out to you? Well, yeah, at the time um, I was getting great cocktails in London, but I lived in New York. And I didn't know, I mean, Angel Share actually existed at that time, the cocktail bar in New York City, but I didn't know about it. So I turned to cocktail books and vintage books specifically mm. to, uh, because I had such an interest in the cocktail world. So um, the real progression was that cocktail books as an antique were great and they looked beautiful and they're interesting. But I put them away for a few years. And when I came back, all these ingredients that I didn't used to be able to get years ago, like orange bitters, for example, were all of a sudden available. So all these old cocktail books became usable, not just beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I guess because there's been this kind of renaissance, hasn't there? It's been going on for the last, I don't know how far you take it back, really, 20 years, maybe 25, 15, depends on what city you're in, which country you're in kind of thing. Sure. This sort of revival of, of classics and and looking back and like you say some of these ingredients are being reformulated so that we can reproduce classics authentically and then obviously equipment and glassware as well sort of allows us to take that more authentic more historically accurate approach to producing these cocktails yeah as we'll get into more i mean the barware that cocktail kingdom produces has definitely taken cues from photos and images in the old cocktail books can you talk a little bit about the manufacturing of uh, the equipment at Cocktail Kingdom. You know, how you started with that, you know, and where it's got to now, especially with the sort of reproduction of, or like, you know, accurate reproduction of authentic stuff um, and the materials that you're using. Sure. So we manufacture almost every type of material, but a lot of things, um, you'll take certain things that are stamped, which are made of thinner sheets of stainless steel and then stamped and then polished. Uh, to be accurate, and then other parts are welded together from several parts. But it's uh, it's a difficult process in terms of having things be consistent, and quality control is a big issue. Our Corico tins, which are you know one of our best sellers, the process by which they're made is you take flattened steel, and then um, there's actually when you put when you uh, put them into round, there's something called bounce back. So some of them, even if they're made correctly, a certain percentage don't end up being the same as the others. So 
a lot of what we do at Cocktail Kingdom is actually in quality control, and we end up melting down almost 10% of the shakers and starting of the of the tins, the Corico tins, and starting over. That's a huge percentage that fails quality mm. control in terms of as they're being manufactured. They don't ever make it across the ocean yeah. or wherever. They just at the manufacturer, they're melted down and they start over. Uh, but the different processes. And the different weld points uh, are a big thing. So with, again, most jiggers are made from two, the two-sided jiggers are, um, will often increase like a weld point from three weld points to four weld points to make sure everything stays together. It is a constant effort on our part to make sure things are consistent. Uh, Glassware, you know, a lot of the glass that we manufacture um, has, uh, Again, the molds only last so long. So after you make a, after you've made fifty thousand mixing glasses, Yari mixing glasses, we then have to start with the mold again, and then make sure the mold is the same. And molds are really uh, one of the largest costs within any of the production that we do of glass. The mold is the biggest economic part of it, not actually the manufacturing the individual pieces. So, uh, but it's it, for us, it's because we manufacture. We do things in wood, uh, metal, glass, uh, all types of different things, um, ceramic. So the quality control, the manufacturing for each is different. And different places, presumably, making this stuff. You got cause... We manufacture in um, 13 different countries, 14 different countries now. Wow. So we do quite a bit in the, in the U.S., um, things like our dasher tops and um, the ice ball makers are all made in New York. And we also manufacture in um, India, Pakistan, China, Japan, Germany, Mexico for different things. Um, Mostly it's based on availability of natural resources in those places. Wow, that's uh, and and I mean, how, give us an idea of how many different products you've got now, and what, where it started, and where it's at. We have, actually, I don't even know how many SKUs we have. Four hundred different SKUs. Um, a little bit we're refining what we offer because having every spoon and every length and every finish um, is a bit difficult, and the getting the copper finish or the gold finish on products is one of our greatest challenges. Um, these days, it wasn't ever easy. How do you do that? How, what's the process of applying that? Uh, it depends on the product, but I mean, we are using actual copper and actual gold with a stainless steel core. So um, those, it's a, you know, it's applied. I mean, essentially, you know, it's a plating. So it's an electromagnetic plating. Wow. The, but that's become extremely difficult, and also um, with environmental concerns worldwide. There are certain products that we won't create because um, something like, I'll give you an example, like something that looks like metal but is actually made of plastic is generally a difficult process to do in an environmentally friendly way. Mm. So we won't do yeah. that. So there's certain things that we've stopped. You know, we're always changing. But our number of SKUs has grown. I mean, originally we just had two mixing glasses, two different styles of bar spoons, one style of jigger. And now it's, we have dozens of bar spoons, four or five styles of jiggers, you know, six different 
um, Hawthorne strainers. There's six different strainers. So it's growing, but not quickly. How is it that you go about designing this equipment? And how has that process sort of evolved, if you like, since Cocktail Kingdom first was established? I mean, what are we talking about? 11, 12 years ago? Is it a little, little bit more than that? Or? Yeah, about 12 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So has the sort of design process changed and, you know, what it, what is ever is influencing the design? So a lot of the design process now, um, we have people in-house that are doing CAD drawings and come up with ideas and create the designs in-house. But still, even today, and definitely when we first started, when I first started Cocktail Kingdom, uh, things were based on historical barware. For example, our julep strainer, I have 300, 400 antique julep strainers in my office. Wow. So we took all the julep strainers and figure out first what works best. And there wasn't one that worked perfectly. So we took the handle of one and the bowl of another um, and sort of Frankenstein them together uh, to create the julep strainer that was historically based, but also fit the most different types of mixing glasses and strained well. So we did a lot of historical um research and then some things we do a line of barware with david wondrich and uh, who's a cocktail historian uh, author of a book imbibe and that his line is straight up historically based it's truly based on things from either my collection or his collection that we think are amazing pieces of barware throughout history um, but now we design modern barware as well yeah, so the one the Wondrich line is more like accurate reproduction of historical barware. Correct, and then you take our co- yeah. our core whether or not it's functionally perfect or not. <laughs> well, we tried to choose things that have a function. There were a couple of things like a very small Hawthorne strainer called the Lindley Pick strainer that at first I didn't realize just how good it was, and then uh, because it looked different from what I'm used to because it's a little smaller, um, but it fits many mixing glasses incredibly well and is actually now the strainer I, cho- I choose to use at home yeah and you've got a lot to choose from as well so yeah. that's that's something <laughs> but we do also have modern barware our strainer like our corico strainer which is our most uh popular hawthorne strainer was designed with uh, by don lee and myself and we created a strainer that we really thought did all the things a strainer could do and that is a completely modern design right do do you have um, I'm going to ask this question in more than one way, but do you have a, a favorite historical piece of bar equipment? Um, well, I kind of, yeah, did give it away a little bit. The the Lindley strainer, which was originally, um, it was the first patented cocktail strainer uh, because the julep strainer is older, but it wasn't patented. So it's the first patented strainer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and it's just great to use. It's a difficult because the coil is fully attached and can't be removed for cleaning is the only negative but it's a smaller and the way that it angles into most mixing glasses and it has um we're actually using the second patent for the design because the first one had no ears and the second one grew ears which means it won't fall into the glass and it's just an interesting design and i also think it looks good when you're using it even in service because uh, people won't have seen it before because it's not common. I didn't know they were called ears, those bits that stop it falling I, into the uh, tin. I'm not sure that's the technical <laughs> term. <laughs> <laughs> Probably no one's thought about it. I made it a lot of stuff up that people then use by mistake. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, I called the Japanese jigger the Japanese jigger like 18 years ago because I thought that 
those taller, thinner jiggers I only saw in Japan. I later, after I called it that, and it now seems to be known as that um, in many countries, uh, is actually an American patent that I didn't know oh, right. then when I called it that. So maybe now I'm making up ears and ears should not be the word people are using, but maybe they will. <laughs> so what's the... What the what does the patent protect on that original Linley strainer? What is it? What about the design that, that was patented? Uh, at that point, it was the way that the coil affixed to it, um, the material it was made out of, and the general design. But that's uh, long since expired. Hmm. Okay. It's interesting because I know there's patents for early cocktail shakers as well, right? Right. None that are current, but no. yes, the old ones definitely had things and they would pick up on some of its minutiae, what made it you know, different from other things. Yeah. Um, but like our Corico strainer has six current patents on it, both design and functional patents based on exactly the spacing and the way the coil is affixed to the strainer. Mm. Uh, so for the modern things we have protection but yeah some of the historical things are historical yeah so can you give us a sort of broad timeline of um when these key pieces of equipment first occurred so strainers shakers jiggers spoons i guess yeah i mean the cobbler shakers are patented in the uh, 1890s there's not a lot of uh, patents on spoons because a spoon is a spoon so uh, they developed over the years um, where the what we consider the t- typical bar spoon these days became common um, in the 1880s and there are some things like we have our Hoffman bar spoon and the curve at the top of the Hoffman bar spoon uh, was made popular at um, Hoffman house which was a uh, bar a famous bar, very probably the most famous bar of the 1880s, 1890s in New York City. And there's luckily photos of some of their barware. And plus, we have antiques from there. I mean, in my collection, I have a few. So that design is from then, but there isn't a patent for it. And then uh, the jigger, the Japanese jigger was what we was actually an American patent um, also from the 1890s. So it's all around about the same era, really, that these pieces of equipment were either patented or kind of appeared. Right. I mean, there are earlier things. I mean, there's one some interesting things. Um, talk about stainless steel, for example. Uh, stainless steel was first created in 1913. My oldest cocktail shaker, which is a tin, like tin on tin, like the, the bottom part of a Boston shaker, is from 1917. So that means... It was created in 1913, and all of a sudden, one of the first things they decided to make was a cocktail shaker using stainless steel. <laughs> Priorities. I love it. Um, talking about the uh, the Hoffman House spoon, and the, mm-hmm. as you say, that sort of flick on the end is almost like an apostrophe, right? That sort of... Yeah. I, bar spoons have often interested me um, in their design. I don't hear that a lot from people, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, obviously, bar spoons are long. They need to get in long glasses. Um, the spoon for stirring and maybe measuring if you want to be really imprecise at measuring things. Um, uh, but then there's the end bit. And the end bit is, is prone to changing a lot. Sometimes you have like a, a sort of trident end. Sometimes it's this Hoffman flick. Sometimes it's like a, a teardrop shape. Mm-hmm. Um, you get the flat-ended ones as well, um, like with a sure. disc on the end. So 
presumably these are all supposed to perform a function and I imagine most of the people listening to this podcast have an idea of what that function is whether they're right or not is another thing because I've often often considered what questioned whether or not I believe the, the the intended use for the end of the spoon is what I'm actually using it for um so can you talk a little bit about the those different designs and what they sure. what they're what they're there for if anything yeah the Hoffman spoon um has the interesting the curve at the top as you're mentioning if you see the old photos that from the Hoffman house um bar guide which is one of the books that cocktail kingdom has done a reproduction of they're actually using their thumb so they place their thumb in the curve hmm. on the um concave side of the curve and then hold it between their fingers and that's actually how stirring was done according mm. to that book um which is interesting the other thing so the that, spoon's not rotating in that sense correct because you would presumably your thumb would st- yeah okay right so that's one way strange. i mean it's it's a bit strange one of the most important parts of the top part of the spoon is really counterbalance and i think that is the most why it can change the way it looks is because weight is the most important and as we're designing new spoons the first reason they will get rejected is if they're not balanced well. So, and balance is a bit relative. Different bartenders find the balance. They want the center to be, the center of balance to be in a different place, but there is somewhat of a consensus on what's functional. The other part that you're mentioning, someone's a flat um, part at the top of a spoon is more coming from a, a French tradition. So you would actually use it to muddle a pill the spoons weren't necessarily as elongated, but Christoffel has a spoon that's extremely old um, that is, was used for bartending. I don't know that it was created for bartending, but of course, when bartending started becoming a profession, there were not uh, there weren't specific bar tools for the profession yet, so they would use what they had. But yeah, the top the the teardrop bar spoon I brought to into production years and years and years ago. Um, I had seen something like it and just liked it. And now it's somehow become popular. But there was, when I started with the teardrop bar spoon, it was not a particular reason other than the weight that I wanted to do that shape. Yeah, I mean, I like the teardrop ones. Um, That's my go-to. I, yeah, I mean, you know, really the spoon is for stirring, um, in my opinion. Um, I, I don't really ever use spoons for measuring um even small small quantities of ingredients and actually most drinks when i'm stirring them i find that the spoon itself gets in the way so mm-hmm. i quite like stirring with the teardrop and in fact i, I think that a, a bar spoon with just a teardrop on each end would not be a bad tool to have we have that um, we sell those the, just get it oh you have that yeah the nico de soto uh bartender who's ah. my partner at mace and also has donico in paris we have the nico de soto yeah. double teardrop bar spoon in uh, i think 30 oh, centimeter, 40 centimeter. Yeah. So it's pretty, uh, it's pretty good. I, I use it a lot if I'm, especially if I'm stirring in a glass, I prefer the double teardrop. Yeah, for sure. And then length. I mean, is that, do you put, do you use different length spoons for different drinks? Or you just, is it appropriate to the length of the glassware or do you have a preference on that? Um, I find it depends on what I'm doing. I use, I tend to use something around 30 to 34 centimeters in length based on my height and bar height. I've also worked at an event where I was working at a lower table and I used a longer spoon. Makes sense. Um, The only time that I think it becomes practical to change spoon sizes, uh, you see people stirring 
two drinks per hand, maybe four drinks in total, and then using two different bar spoons at the same time for that. But really, I find it's personal preference. I find yeah. we do sell 50-centimeter bar spoons. Um, and I've even made a 60-centimeter bar yeah. spoon just because Long. I could. <laughs> but I find them incredibly <laughs> impractical. Among other things, they also bend. Every time I try to – I've traveled with my 60-centimeter bar spoons. It's, you kind of have to hand carry it every place and be careful with it. Yeah, I think I had one of your longer ones. I don't know if it's as long as 50. Maybe it was. 50, we make a 30, a 40, and a 50. Yeah, that would have been the 50. Probably. It might have been a 40, I reckon. But that got bent. Um, and of course, once they get bent, it's really difficult to get them straight again, like perfectly straight again. Yeah, no, that that would be a lesson in frustration. Anyway. So you you don't particularly advise different spoons for different drinks. It's more a case of the sort of situation, whatever kind of fits the 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 the, the deck or the bar or the height of the bar, like you say, your the own height, height of the person, the height of the bar, the height yeah. of the bar. Yeah, yeah. And what about jiggers? What's your preference there? What what do you like to use? Because they come in all different shapes and sizes now. Um, I I pers- I'll tell you what I use. Um, I personally just use because we we UK um, a standard like fifty twenty five Japanese jigger as you call it, sort of tall, slender, two cones attached to each other kind of situation. So I think that's definitely been my go-to jigger as well, the Japanese jigger. Um, the Leopold jigger, I think, is extremely elegant, which is the rounder one. And Leopold was my great-grandfather, who was also slightly rounder. Thus, I named it after him. Uh, and <laughs> I do find the Leopold jigger is a little more elegant. The, uh, the Actually, there's not a lot of innovation in barware. One thing I'm pretty proud of that Cocktail Kingdom just did is we released our heavyweight Corico jigger. And it's actually our first jigger that's made out of one solid piece of metal. The downside is it's a little heavy, but wow, yeah. I don't mind that. Um, but there are no points of failure. It is absolutely solid. It's made from one piece. Nothing can happen to it. Um, and jiggers for me are a difficult subject because a lot of there are a lot of jiggers out there that are completely not accurate and i've said this a lot and i'll say it again that jiggers shouldn't make mistakes bartenders can make mistakes but the jiggers shouldn't make the mistake um and this goes back historically too old jiggers my antique jiggers often when i measure them are inaccurate i think there may have been different tolerances during the manufacturing process back then but for me, my favorite jigger is a jigger that's accurate, is the first thing, because mm-hmm. it is incredible. I actually had a situation, this is actually quite a few years ago, somebody sent me um, a recipe, and it was way too sweet. And then it turned out the jigger that the woman was using that sent me the recipe, uh, her jigger was completely inaccurate. And where she told me she was adding like a half an ounce of, of a sweetener, it was like a, closer to a quarter ounce. So, you know, instead mm, of makes a big difference, you know, it, it, it makes a big difference. Um, so, yeah, but I think that jiggers for me, it really depends how they fit your fingers and whether you're using one or two at the same time. Um, but I also use the Japanese jigger and the Leopold both a lot. The Corico jigger, I can't say I've used it a lot because it's brand new and I just got my own, my own pieces a couple weeks ago. Nice. Yeah. I mean, on the accuracy thing, Obviously, it's important. Um, but even with an accurate trigger, I feel like a bartender could be inconsistent. You know, when you get to that, 
you know, 95%, well, 95% full, 100% full, 105% full mm. with the meniscus, you know, there's a, there's opportunity for five plus or minus 5%, say, tolerance there to what you think an accurate jigger is. So maybe not so much with one bartender, but between different bartenders, a full jigger might mean one thing to one and a different thing to another. Yeah, absolutely. And to a degree, there's a right and wrong with what is full. Meniscus versus no meniscus, there's some argument what's correct. But I see bartenders on a regular basis starting to pour the jigger out while they're still filling the jigger or not filling mm. to the top. I mean, yeah. I see it all over the world, incredibly inaccurate jiggering. Um, so, yeah, there are yeah. definitely ways to use That's the tools That's... incorrectly. <laughs> yeah, there seems to be a trend for that, doesn't there? This, I don't know where it came from. I, actually, I have a suspicion. I do know where it came from. But this idea <laughs> of pouring into the jigger... And then when it's nearly full, you pour the liquid in and then continue to pour. And my th- my theory of where it came from, you'll probably know better than me, is that there was a time in the UK where a lot of bartenders were using 45ml jiggers. Um, and, and I've witnessed some bartenders topping up the extra 5ml to 50ml for, for making cocktails or mixed drinks that needed 50ml of liquid in. And I kind of, I got the impression that that was where the trend came from. But I see it all the time now. Um, and it's almost, it's funny because it's a sort of display of inaccuracy that's become almost like a mark of, oh, well, you know what you're doing because you're pouring extra liquid into a tin, you know? And it's interesting too, because it's not always over pouring. It's actually interesting when you do the measurement and you check it because people start tipping the jigger while they're still pouring. It seems like they're pouring more. I always thought it came because you're trying to seem more generous than you are but you're actually um in theory i'm sure there's a way to do that accurately with enough practice uh but yeah i just um yeah it's it, it seems like a little bit of flair that actually just makes your pouring inaccurate mostly are there any other sort of this is where you can go on your soapbox and start ranting is there any other like misuses of cocktail equipment or you know disrespectful use of cocktail equipment that really kind of triggers you or that you notice going on around the place? Mostly just people taking a sip out of a jigger, taking a sip out of a mixing tin. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> you'll see that mostly after hours. When, uh, But no, yeah. I think that most people, I mean, it, shakes are interesting and you get into different types of shakes and what's accurate and what's not. And um, I do think you see a lot of, I mean, most of the cocktail bars I go to where I'm ordering a cocktail, they're generally, somebody knows how to shake. Otherwise, I won't order a, a cocktail there. But no, I think most people, other, I think jiggers are definitely the most misused thing. I definitely see people under stirring. I used to do something which mm. was really annoying for bartenders, and I would carry an infrared thermometer around and check the temperature of my drinks. Um, this was when I was much younger, and... You know, I don't do that anymore. have not done this for about 20 years. Um, but yeah. now I, because now I can tell within a half a degree Celsius what the temperature is anyway. Yeah, um, you don't need to do it. You just know, I, right? Yeah. But it's amazing. Um, we actually created Cocktail Kingdom once. I don't think we have it anymore. I had a spoon with a thermometer on the end. And I, people under stir drinks. It takes a long time to stir a drink to get it. My favorite temperature for a drink is sort of negative six, negative seven um yeah. celsius and so it takes yeah. a while thanks to for doing the conversion there appreciate that <laughs> yeah um <laughs> so but yeah i definitely um 
find understirred drinks. Yeah, that one gets on my nerves as well. And I've been going on about it for years. Um, it, to be honest, it was it was not something that I noticed from a sensory perspective. I wasn't receiving drinks and going, damn, all these things are too warm. It was only when I started conducting tests of like shaking drinks versus stirring and measuring their temperature and everything. I was like, no one's stirring long enough. Like, you need to stir a cocktail for well over a minute to get it down to the right temperature. Well, and there's also... And everyone's just doing... And I was going to say, there's also the, what is your, for you, when do you want the drink to be perfect or as close to perfect mm. as it can get? Is it on the first sip? or after it's been sitting there yeah. for three minutes. And if it's over a big cube of ice, so it's actually a shaken drink versus stirred drink and an up drink versus a rocks drink, for me, have different ideal temperatures when they're served. I tend to drink my drinks medium fast, so I like them to be somewhat near the correct temperature if they're on the rocks when they're served. Mm. Um, and then you see somebody like Nico DeSoto that I mentioned who drinks his drinks incredibly quickly. So anything served to him should be at the right temperature for the first sip. Um, yeah. So it really depends, I think, how you drink. I mean, do you have a preference as to whether you, know, you want it to sit? Because some bars I go to, the first sip's not the best. It needs more dilution. Yeah, I, well, I drink medium fast, I would say. Mm. Um, probably accelerating as time goes on. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, yeah, I feel like, well, with, with, with straight up drinks, I feel like there's a onus to, and I want to make sure that I'm on the right side of responsible drinking here, but that it's, you know, we don't dwell on these drinks too long. Um, it's part of the nature of that kind of cocktail. You know, the fact that it isn't served over ice tells you something about the way in which this drink should be consumed. Um, and I will, I will adjust my pace based on that you know so if it's served on the rocks that indicates to me i should take my time a little bit more with it because ice has been provided in order to you know maintain that low temperature and yes you know obviously add a little bit of dilution as time goes on but i think that's another thing that's overstated i think people think that on the rocks drinks dilute really really quickly and mm. it's, it's slower than you think if the drink's at the right temperature in the first place very true yeah it's interesting i mean to think about an up drink and i mean for me uh i certainly would never recommend a three martini lunch but when three martini lunch was a thing in the 50s those drinks were you know we're talking the glass was three ounce or 90 ml that's the yeah. glass itself so it's a bit of a misnomer when you think about somebody, you know, about up drinks. And I actually don't like large up drinks. I'd rather them be smaller. Mm. And high quality, smaller drinks for me are almost always a better way to go. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I've, I've been thinking about this a bit recently about the size of the glassware and the size of the serve. Um, as you know, I've been writing a bit about the martini. And mm -hmm. um, my. Well, you know, as you say, all of the older recipes for these drinks going back to the middle part of the century and before with much, much smaller cocktails. But of course, once, you know, these kind of bastardizations of martinis took place going through the sort of 70s, 80s, 90s, the glassware kind of upscaled to accommodate all of that juice and like ice and everything else that got put into it. And so when we kind of emerged out of that period and wanted to start making martinis again or manhattans or whatever it might be straight up classic cocktails with you know quite a high um alcohol content or alcohol percentage 
you know, all we had were these monstrous, like 12 ounce martini glasses to put them in. And so, you know, even if you, even if you were playing on the safe side, you needed to put quite a lot of gin or vodka or, or bourbon or whatever in, into that cocktail to make the make to make the drink not look as if you completely sold the customer short so then we needed smaller glassware to come along to order, in order to make these drinks more more accurately in the in the historical sense yeah and that's one of the, the leopold coupe um when i designed that glass um again named after my great-grandfather because it's quite round um and i designed the the top sort of half centimeter to come in ever so slightly to reduce spillage, but it was also a smaller glass, which made sense. So people could enjoy the whole ceremony of having the cocktail and the quality of the cocktail without, you know, using 1990s style giant goblets. <laughs> yeah. It's practically a martini punch bowl kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's, I do think that small glasses are great. You kind of get that whole ritual of a martini. And like similarly to small bottles of beer, you know, you've got a higher surface area to volume ratio. So i.e., you've got more glass contact per milliliter of liquid. And assuming your glass is cold, that will keep the drink colder longer. Plus, you're going to drink it quickly because there's less liquid in there in the first place. Yeah, I think that makes sense. The surface area to volume <laughs> thing. It sounds like it makes sense. Sounds good to me. <laughs> uh, so um, talk a little bit about cocktail shakers, maybe. And I mean, you know, you've mentioned already that perhaps there aren't sort of specific bar spoons for specific drinks. It's there's other factors that play into that. But how do you feel about shakers and, and different styles of drinks? Obviously, volume comes into this. If it's a bigger drink, you need a bigger shaker. But do you kind of say, well, you know, cobbler shakers should be used for this kind of drink and tin on tin or Boston's for this? Where's your stance on that? I do mostly because of historical cues or what I've seen in my travels around the world. Um, for example, I like to make a gimlet using a cobbler shaker because I associate gimlets strongly with Tokyo and maybe something like the tender bar with his hard shake. And does it make the drink different? Not completely. Um, and it also, the main difference for me between using a cobbler or using tin on tin, uh, is going to be the type of strainer that you use. Cause if you're not fine straining, if I use a cobbler, uh, for example, if I'm going to do a tender bar style gimlet, whether or not I could do the hard shake, is, <laughs> I can't do the hard shake. Um, but the essential. It's, it's not a video podcast, otherwise, we could try and get you to do a demo. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that'd be fun. Um, <laughs> so, the I like some ice chips in my gimlet because um, I mostly drink gimlets when I'm in Tokyo. And in Tokyo, there's often little tiny, ice, tiny little ice slivers on top. So, I will use a cobbler shaker for that because the drink will come out slightly differently if I use tin on tin. And the throw distance is just so different with tin on tin um, or a, mm. a, Boston, a Boston setup compared to a cobbler shaker, and depending on the size of the cobbler shaker. Uh, there are, I like to use certain things like for, um, I like to use the Parisian shaker for egg white drinks because I like the way it froths up, it froths up and I like uh, because of the longer throw distance and I can control it with my strainer with a Hawthorne strainer. Um, 
a little bit better in terms of keeping the froth in the drink as opposed to sometimes in a cobbler shaker I find it'll get stuck in the shaker instead of uh, coming into the glass. So there's certain subtleties, yeah, yeah. but for me it's mostly based on historical cues and how, what I think of the drink as being and where I associate the drink, what part of the world I associate the drink with, which isn't an association with where it was created. It's an association to me where it's been popular in since I've been drinking. Yeah, which, and, you know, I think that striving for that well not necessarily historical accuracy like you say maybe cultural accuracy around that cocktail is just as important as any kind of physics that may be involved in the production of that drink because ultimately with cocktails we're trying to create an experience right and if that experience can you know have layers of authenticity to it that sort of take you to that place and that moment where that drink was you know popularized or or, or invented then that's something that's worthwhile trying to achieve in the production of our cocktails. Yeah, and I think also a good story makes a good makes a cocktail taste better. And if I'm making a drink for somebody and I can tell them this is where I saw this, um, there's one difficult part, and I'm, you probably find this too, is being a cocktail historian is you can prove most stories wrong or you know that they're not correct. And <laughs> I always tell people if there's a good story about a drink that's not true don't stop telling it just change the way you tell it and be like yeah. legend has it yeah. or it was once thought <laughs> yeah but also to your point about um stories it's sort of like a kind of part of the territory really with uh, alcohol literature that so much of it was recorded whilst someone was drinking um, or, or as a story told at a bar to someone else who was drinking, who then recorded it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun though, and there are there are some great stories. There's no question about that, whether they're true or not. Do you ever see a time where technology may play a bigger role in our equipment? You know, to some extent, this. You know, I'm not don't feel entirely comfortable about the prospect of this because again, it's sort of. It goes against that sort of traditional thing that we've been talking about and that classic kind of form and shape. But, you know, can you imagine scales built into shakers or, or into mixing beakers or, you know, thermometers built into other pieces of equipment or something that can help improve accuracy of temperature or measurement somehow built into this? I mean, I hate the thought of like a Bluetooth app on a phone and a bartender staring down at a phone. <laughs> but you know what I'm getting at. Is there any way of making this happen, do you think? No, I mean, I do think if I was at a large stadium and there was a machine that made my drink, I'd kind of be okay with that. <laughs> if it was, you know, rather than, you know, if there was a Negroni machine, three ingredients, mm. would it be the best thing I ever drank? Absolutely not. But in terms of the small wares, not really, because essentially as much as like cocktail kingdom bar where it's not inexpensive, it's still not that expensive. And once you build in the technology, you end up building in so much cost to it and points of failure whereby that even something with a thermometer, the thermometer would fail well before the spoon would ever, you know, a spoon that had a thermometer, it would be the thermometer that would end up failing. But I think there's too much ceremony in high-end cocktail world for those things to be important. In the mass production of cocktails in large-scale venues where quality was, you know, where quality you would accept accept a slightly lower quality maybe but i just don't see it happening in sort of the places with uh 
the small scale cocktail production, even, I mean, a high volume cocktail bar is still only relatively high volume. I mean, there are exceptions, but I just don't see it happening. Are you okay with um, like batching or indeed with cocktails sort of being made out of sight? Or does that sort of in some way diminish the uh, experience for you? I'm absolutely fine with batching. I'd rather have a properly made cocktail that, that, that then is properly chilled and diluted at the time that it's served, served in a correct glass. I'm absolutely happy with that. Um, I've got a lot of things like in my bar Mace with Nico de Soto, a lot of our drinks, you know, that take a long time to make between clarification and different processes you're using. So you're not going to make them a la menu. It's just not, uh, not possible. Or I think, um, I'm actually fine with that. And I also, I always go back to history. I mean, with bottled cocktails are extremely historical. There are bottled cocktail recipes in most old cocktail books um, in, my co- in the library of Cocktail Kingdom. So I'm fine with batching, bottling. I think if things are made well with high-quality ingredients uh, and then chilled and diluted, I'm, I'm definitely going to be drinking that and enjoying it. Yeah, uh, I agree. I think... Um especially with bottling, I think there's some technology and some innovation potential there. We need fridges. Well, I don't know if you call it a fridge. Maybe it's a freezer that like sits around that minus eight to 10 mark so that we can bottle and batch stirred drinks in these fridges and then just pour them straight into glasses. I always found that interesting when I was in Italy that uh, the gelato was served at this perfect texture. And I realized it's because they had specific freezers that weren't quite as cold as the freezer I was used to, but certainly were not refrigerators. And they mm. had the right equipment for the right thing. So yeah, bottled cocktail served at, at the right temperatures. That's a great idea. Cocktail Kingdom times Tristan Stevenson, uh, minus 10 degrees, bottled cocktail fridge stroke freezer. I think we should do it. I'm kind of into the idea. I like it. Yeah. All right. Cool. We'll, we'll talk about it more offline. Look, thanks so much for coming on. It's been such a, I mean, it's a geeky one and I knew it would be. And I love these kind of conversations um, to delve into your mind a little bit more. And because um, just such a resource for all of the, you know, vintage cocktail books, the bartenders, the drinks, and, and of course the equipment. So thank you. Yeah, well, thanks. I haven't uh, had a chance to really nerd out about barware in a little while. So it's definitely fun to do. Thanks for listening to the Diageo Bar Academy Bar Chat Podcast. Follow and subscribe now to pick up on future episodes or listen back to episodes so far. And remember to rate and review as you listen. See you next time.